this morning, we have the, the privilege and the honor of having Stephen Debs here to visit with us. They have been here before, and for those, uh, if I can just take a quick minute to introduce them and talk about them and honor them before I call them both up here. Actually, Kaden, you should come up too when we call you up. Uh, so Stephen Debs are incredible leaders, and they lead a church called Church in the City, which is not too far from here, and that's the church where we came from, and, and you know, we just want to share, we're always so excited and, and glad when they're here, because we, I speak for us and, and Vanessa, we've learned so much from them in terms of how to walk with God, how to uh, be humble, but at the same time, you know, be courageous in the things that God has called us to do, be obedient, and be passionate for the things that God has called us to do. And uh, we, we have learned so much from them through the years in terms of uh, leadership, in terms of how to press in, how to hear from God, and how to uh, be faithful in the things that God has um, um, blessed us with. So with that, um, we want to, uh, if I can ask all three of them to come up. Kaden, you too, Kaden. Oh, you want, Vanessa wants to say something too. So before I, uh, come on up. You come on up. Um, and Vanessa, I guess Vanessa wants to say something too before I. Give the mic over to them. I also wanted to introduce you. <laughs> he wanted to introduce you. I wanted to introduce you. <laughs> we'll both introduce you. So anyway, he said a lot already that where we came from, um, but they've just been best friends to us. They've just been incredible friends to our family. And we've been through everything together, thick and thin. Thick and thin. They know all of the worst and best about us. I think we know all the worst and best about them as well. Um, they had faith for us. They brought us onto their eldership team as the first elders. When Hugh was recently saved, um, he took a big chance. <laughs> and they were able to start a church in Chicago from scratch, to plant a church from scratch. Um, they're moving from another country. They're incredibly gifted leaders. Um, and they have an incredible ability to raise up leaders. God used them to grow us to leaders, which if you knew us then is a miracle in itself. So they have an incredible ability to raise up leaders. And just, yeah, they're humble, gifted people. And we love them so much. And they love restoration. So just uh, receive them with, you know, full open arms and open hearts this morning. So. Thank you for having us, or for being here. <laughs> um, if I could ask Debs, maybe why don't you uh, introduce Steve a little bit. I know you guys know Steve, but it'll be, uh, you, you can do, uh, introduce your family and Caden, and we don't want to miss out Caden. Caden has been a great friend to our, to our kids and to our families and to everyone here also. Aiden is a cousin. They just don't know it yet. It's not blood, blood relation. Um, so to introduce Steve, he is uh, a courageous leader that's been said already with an incredible passion for God's people, I think would be the first thing that I would say about him. He loves with all his heart. Um, he prays every single day for his, the people that God has entrusted him to. And I think... One of the best qualities that I see in him is the integrity of which he approaches the call of God. Uh, there is just never a day that goes by that he doesn't take on the weight and responsibility of ministering to God's people. I have never seen a flippant, complacent bone in his body when it comes to delivering the word. 
He speaks with humility. Uh, he speaks having gone through everything he talks about. And there's a reality and a, a humility to him that makes the word so tangible to us because we know that it's real. And it's not something that he has just grasped out of thin air, but he's walked the road. He walks it every day. Um, and I love him for it. And I'm not biased. I know I'm his wife, but he is honestly my favorite teacher of the word. I could listen to him for hours. Um, and I trust that he'll be a blessing for you today. But just know what stands there is not this guy who's elevated or he's just a normal man who loves Jesus and wants to do the very best he can so that he can stand before him and say, and hear, well done, good and faithful servant one day. And my boy, I love my boy. He's a special treasure. All right, good morning, everyone. Can you turn me down just a fraction, if possible, if that's all right? Um, just before you start to think that, um, yeah, things that you shouldn't think. My wife and I did have an, a, a terrible argument this morning, and we came to church um, having argued and the reality of life and by the grace of God. And I love that song, you know, just singing about God's grace. Um, because that's honestly what, what we need and what we rely on every day. And actually, it's the message that I want to preach this morning. Um, when Hugh and Ness invited us to come and to, um, although one week late, to celebrate your um, one year and one week anniversary, um, honestly, we were incredibly honored um, that you guys would invite us to come and do that. And uh, our only regret is that we weren't here last week. But um, I want to just say how in the right way, how incredibly proud we are of you guys as the, as the couple who lead this church and of this entire church. Honestly, we, um, we thank God. I won't say daily, but I, I can say honestly weekly. We thank God for, for you guys and for the work that he's doing here um, through restoration and the impact that we get to make together with you into our city. Um, I think we are starting to realize more and more together just the challenges of what it means to be planting and to lead churches in the city. And, and I want to commend each of you for, for making the, for those that have made this home um, to, to continue to be full of faith. Um, I was thinking, sorry, this is not part of my sermon. So this is just, uh, there's going to be another 30 minutes on top of what I'm going to share right now. But just, you know, there are, it's so easy in the culture in which we live to, um, to make things happen. It's so easy in the culture to, that we live to, to, to do things. And if we're not careful, we can look back on what, what's grown and we can say, was that God or was that, was that me? And I trust with you guys that we would desire to build churches that Jesus is building. Churches that, that God has, 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 has established truth in that church and it's about Jesus. And people come because there's the life of God here. And I want to commend you guys. I want to encourage you guys to remain faithful to the calling he has on this church. Don't, uh, if I can say, don't sell yourself short on what God has called you guys to be. Be the authentic community and the authentic church that he's called you to be. And actually, the message that I want to preach this morning, I was thinking about what, what to share as we, as we celebrate with you one year and one week. 
what, what, what to share. You know, do we, do we teach on leadership? Do we teach on, on this or that? And I just felt to come back to teach on the gospel of grace. It's the reason why we're here. It's the reason why we gather every Sunday. It's the reason why we wake up every morning and spend time with the Lord. It's because of the gospel of grace. And I want to say unashamedly, it's a similar message I preached in our church last week. I halted a series to preach on the reality of the gospel of grace because uh, it's just that that message is stirring deep in my heart that we must remember what this is all about. And um, so before we do that, we're going to play a little game um, just to get you guys involved in the sermon this morning. So the game is simply, um, the game is called a, a verse from the Bible or a line from the movie. So that's what the game is called, a verse from the, a verse from a Bible, from the Bible or a line from a movie. And I'm going to read and up on the screen there's going to come a, a, a line and you need to tell me whether it's a Bible verse or whether it's a line from a movie. And uh, I'll give you one point if you can guess which one it is. And then I'll give a thousand points to anyone who can tell me where is it, what movie it's from or what Bible verse it is. And then Gavin, you can keep score since you're competitive and uh, we can see who wins. So the first one, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Come here and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Anyone? Bible verse, line from a movie. Bible verse. Anyone know where it's from? David and Goliath. Vanessa has a thousand and one points. She takes the lead. Well done. Good job. First Samuel 17, David and Goliath. Goliath is, is shouting his, his taunts at the people of Israel. How about this one? Next one. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Bible verse, movie quote. Anyone? Movie quote. It is. Can anyone guess where it's from? Uh, Maximus, sometimes known as Russell Crowe in Gladiator. He stands there. What we do in life echoes in eternity. And then he goes on to say, uh, at my, I think at my shout or at my sound, uh, unleash the forces of hell. That's what he says. So, all right. So, um, next one. Uh, a day may come when the courage of men fail, for, uh, fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. This day we fight by all that you hold dear on this good earth. I bid you stand. That's a movie. Of course it is. That's a movie. Anyone can uh, guess where it is? No, good guess, but Brad, Caden, you know the answer. No, you can, you, Caden knows the answer. Caden knows, <laughs> anyone else? Lord of the Rings. Game of Thrones is a good guess. Lord of the Rings, there you go. All right, last one, and then we're going to move on. These men are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. It's the Bible. Believe it or not, it's the Bible. It actually is the Bible. It's from the book of Isaiah. And it's when the Assyrian army were, were attacking the Israelites and a field commander in the Assyrian army is taunting the Israelites and saying, don't put your faith in what Hezekiah says. Hezekiah says, trust in, in the Lord. And I tell you, this is what the guy says, I tell you today that the king of Assyria has destroyed other people, other nations who've put their hope in their God. So don't follow what, what Hezekiah says. Quite an awful verse. Um, that's quite a taunt. So all of these are fun and sometimes more serious examples of what are known as boasts. And boasts are simply those things that it typically finds its outworking in a military context. And it simply is a statement for yourself and for those that you are going into battle with to remind you of where your confidence and hope lies. 
So when, you know, in the first example that I showed of, of David and Goliath, when Goliath says, you know, if you come at me, I will take your flesh and I will give it to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. What Goliath is doing is not only is he taunting the Israelites, but he's reminding himself that they don't have warriors who are nine foot tall. And, and he's saying, my confidence, my courage, my anchor, my boast is in my own strength. I love David's response to Goliath in um, 1 Samuel 17. David replies, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. So essentially what David is saying is, Goliath, you have your strength, but I have my God. My God, the Lord Almighty, who has delivered me from the lion and delivered me from the bear, and is going to deliver me from you, that's where my boast is. So the point I'm trying to make is both David and Goliath boast. But the source of their boast, the source of their confidence, the source of their strength, their, the place in which their anchor rests is completely different. When we think of the term boast in, the, in a modern context, we don't ever think of it in a good way. We, we often think it's distasteful or it's childish, or it's self-centered, and often it actually is. But if we start to understand the reality of what a boast actually is, and I've defined a boast as this, a declaration of where our confidence is, where our hope and where our, our identity lie, who or what our anchor is. When we understand that that, in essence, is what a boast is, then we can start to see that that. There is, a pos there is the possibility that boasting can actually be redemptive. Boasting can actually have some gospel value. Boasting, can, if it's done correctly, if it's done rightly, can actually release something of the power of God. And it's the very reason Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6. He says this right at the end of the book of Galatians. But far be it for me to boast. He says, I'm not giving myself to, to boasting in anything except this. Except the cross of except the cross of, of of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so what I want to kind of ask and answer today is what gave Paul the courage? What gave Paul the the, the impetus to write that, that that verse? To say it is right for us to boast if we are boasting in the cross of Jesus. Why is Paul saying it is it is virtuous? For us to be boasting, not just boasting in anything, but boasting specifically in the Lord. And to answer that question, we're going to do a, in 20 minutes, we're going to do a very quick survey of the book of Galatians. Because if there's any book in the Bible that speaks about the grace of God, it is the book of Galatians. So a quick kind of overview, uh, overview. we're going to look at two main passages of scripture. So there's going to be a little bit of kind of chunky Bible reading. We'll get through that, we'll make some comments, and then we'll, we'll, we'll end off with some ministry. So Paul, about 13 years after Paul gets saved, you know, if you read Acts chapter 9, that incredible moment where Paul encounters the living Jesus Christ and knocks him off his horse. He's blinded but transformed forever. 13 years after that event, Paul and his friend Barnabas begin traveling into the province of Galatia, which is now modern-day southern Turkey. And, 
as they go from village to village, Paul is preaching the gospel and they are establishing communities, not unlike this one, where people are gathering together in the name of Jesus Christ and leaders are put in place and churches are established. And Paul then travels on to the next village to preach the gospel again, to establish leaders, place, and, and to establish these particular churches. And after this kind of apostolic or ministry journey, Paul and Barnabas eventually make their way back to Antioch, which is the church that they come from. And about a year or so after Paul has, has returned back to Antioch, he begins to hear of, of news of how those churches are doing. And Paul is absolutely livid. Paul is angry. Paul is fuming. Something has happened. And he, he, he eventually writes the book of Galatians, which is undoubtedly the most scathing, angry rebuke that you'll find in Scripture. I'll read you a few thoughts of essentially what Paul is saying. This is not a direct translation, but this is kind of my modern day translation of what Paul is saying. You crazy Galatians, did someone put a spell on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened, for it is obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. Let me put this question to you. How did you begin your new life? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Or was it by responding to God's message of grace to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy, mad people would think that they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? I wish these agitators, those that have bewitched you, obsessive as they are about circumcision, would go the whole way and castrate themselves. That's essentially what Paul is saying. He is absolutely angry. And the question we have to ask ourselves is why? What has taken place in these churches that is causing Paul to be so angry? Two things essentially have happened. The first thing is that for some reason the Jews are refusing to eat with Gentiles. And Paul addresses this in Galatians chapter 2. And the passage of Scripture will come up on the screen. And I want to just read this passage of Scripture because it sets the scene for us. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, When Cephas, Cephas is, is Peter, uh, When Cephas, uh, or Peter, came to Antioch where Paul was based, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain, before certain men came from James, James was the leader of the church in, in, in Jerusalem. So many Jewish converts had gotten saved. Before certain men came from James, from Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, when these Jewish converts came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The circumcision party was this sect of Jewish believers who insisted that, that for a Gentile to be saved, truly saved, they had to be circumcised. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the gospel of truth, I said to Cephas before all of them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Essentially, what, what he's saying to Cephas is this. If you are free under the grace of God, how dare you put others under the bondage of rule-keeping or living according to human standards? And as strong as that sounds, friends, it's a question we've got to ask ourselves. If we come under the freedom of God's grace, how dare we ever put expectations on people that are of a human nature rather than the grace and goodness of God? 
The second issue that, that, was, that the churches in, in that particular province was facing was not only that the Jews weren't eating with the Gentiles, but the Jews had insisted that the Gentiles circumcise themselves in order to become fully accepted into the people of God. And again, we'll see in Galatians chapter 5, Paul addresses this. For freedom, for freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, be sure-footed, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Slavery to a system of rule-keeping or human standards. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, if you're going to do, if you're going to follow rule keeping, you're cutting yourself off from Jesus. That's essentially what he's saying. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And that in itself, for a Jewish person to write that, that the whole law is summarized by faith, outworking itself through love, is a remarkable statement. And that honestly is the essence of the gospel of grace. It's our faith in Jesus Christ finding its outworking in love. So those were the two issues facing the church. There were Jews refusing to eat with Gentiles and the Gentiles feeling like they needed to circumcise themselves in order to be fully accepted into the people of God. I read one commentator and he summarized it like this. The issues facing the church in Galatia was food and foreskins. And it's a kind of a fun, simple way of remembering it. But when you put it like that, the issues sound so trivial. Oh, really? I mean, is it really worth Paul getting this upset about, about food and foreskins? I mean, they love Jesus, don't they? I mean, is it, is it really? Surely this is something that if you give them 10 or 12 years, they'll eventually start to work it out. And I think sometimes we can approach our relationship with God like that. You know, yes, the main thing is Jesus and we focus our eyes on him, but we forget that the way we sometimes live nullifies the reality of grace. And friends, whenever stuff gets in the way of the un, undiluted truth of the grace of God, we need to deal with it head on. And that's why Paul gets so angry. Let me give you an example to try and help you understand and just kind of put you in Paul's shoes. I come from a country called South Africa where unfortunately we are perhaps known mostly for our apartheid rules or laws which govern the country from around about the 1940s or 50s until the 1980s or so. Terrible laws that were in place, which segregated white and black and oppressed black people. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that God called you to be a missionary into, black, into apartheid South Africa in the 70s. I want, to imagine, I want you to imagine for a moment that, that under the call of God, you felt to go to South Africa and to start a school. Now, in the day, in the 70s, schools were segregated along racial lines. There were schools for whites and schools for blacks. But you, under the grace of God, under the conviction of what the Bible teaches, you decide to build a school that is going to integrate races because you are convinced that is the best reflection of the gospel. And so you build classrooms that are not segregated racially, but there are classrooms that are segregated or divided simply because of different grades. And the bathrooms are not differentiated racially. The bathrooms are differentiated for boys and girls. There's one cafeteria for all the kids to eat in and one playground for all the kids to play in. 
and you establish the school and you start the school and the school is running well and you, you put in place a board of governors to, to, to begin to take leadership of the school so that you are freed up to go on to your next project. And you do that and you move on to the next project. But about a year later, you start to get wind of the fact that some of the local politicians from their town have infiltrated that, that school governing body. And they've started to convince people that children learn best when they stay within their own race. And that Zulu children aren't able to learn with white children. And very quickly you start to hear that the school is starting to become segregated. The classrooms are segregated along racial lines. The bathrooms, the playgrounds, the cafeteria. How would you feel? It's an, it's an absolute opposition to your conviction of the gospel. I think you would write or say things far more heavy-handed than I wish they would just go and castrate themselves. You'd probably say something a lot more intense. And that's the point. Paul is absolutely fuming because, because as soon as we divide along racial lines or along ethnic lines or along human standards, we start to dilute the reality of the grace of God. For the Jew to say to the Gentile, for you to be accepted, for you to find reason to boast, the fact is that you have to be circumcised is a complete denial of the grace of God. And they were saying, until you can boast in your circumcision, we refuse to eat with you. That's the issue that Paul is, is beginning to deal with. This, we know, friends, is not the gospel of grace. We're not saved and we don't maintain our salvation by following human standards or coming under a system of rule keeping or trying to live up to a standard that other people want to place on you. The Bible says, John chapter 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the heart of God. For God so loved the world. This, this gospel of grace was not, a, a, it's not our idea. We didn't come together as a, as a human race and say, all right, how do, we, how do we save ourselves? No, God so loved, so, so wanted to express his grace and mercy over the world that, that he did the one thing that cost him dear, the, the most. He gave his one and only son. And all he asks in return is for us to put our faith and trust in him. And when we do that, when we believe in Jesus Christ, he says, we shall have eternal life. Not just one day when we die, but right here, this side of eternity, you and I can enjoy life to the full by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. It's God's desire. It's God's heart, Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that everyone be saved. Not just those who adhere to a certain system of rule keeping. Or those who castrate themselves. I mean, sorry, not castrate. Those who circumcise themselves. Or castrate themselves, yeah. That's quite a, yeah, anyway, let me not get distracted. <laughs> that's, that's the heart of the gospel. God's desire is that all be saved. Friends, can I say this? As soon as we deny the grace of God, division and disunity starts to come in. And I, this is not a please you. We're going to speak, we are speaking about the grace of God. I'm, I'm just showing you that this has political, this has, this has, this has issues of, of, of unity in our nation, in our church. We don't have the right to divide over, over black, white, over male, female, over rich, over poor. And even in the church, over whether we speak in tongues or whether we don't speak in tongues. 
And as soon as we have those, those, those divisions created, it's because we are denying the grace of God. No human standard, no human measurement should ever put us in a position where we feel like we are not accepted by, by the goodness and grace of God. Paul says that in Galatians chapter 3, for in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you, as many, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, in other words, as, uh, for as many of you as were placed into the person of Jesus, you have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. As important, friends, as reconciliation is to the gospel, and it is. The God, that's why reconciliation is so important to the gospel of grace, because we are reconciled first to God and then to one another across lines that typically divide. But can I say, as, as important as this, this letter is, even to our current political situation, this is not primarily a social justice letter. This is a letter about the grace of God. This is a letter about the mercy of God. This is a letter about the kindness of God. And that's what I want to kind of focus in on for the last 10 minutes. Paul is unpacking the truth of the grace of God. And the way he does that, I brought a little Starbucks illustration. The way he does that is he does it at three different levels. He, he helps the church and he helps us understand the grace of God at three different levels. This little tall cup is the is the level at which Paul addresses the grace of God as it impacts me personally. But you see, the grace of God doesn't just impact me personally because I am part of, the, of a local church. I am part of the body of Christ. It is the grace of God, not just as it impacts me personally, but how it impacts me as part of God's people. But then the local church doesn't just uh, uh, kind of stand here in isolation. This church and our church are part of the body of Christ that stretches from the beginning of time until the end of time. And so we fit into this venti cup nice and snug. There are three different levels. And that's what Paul is doing in, in, this, in this particular book. How many of you have read or studied or even heard of Romeo and Juliet? I trust you all have. So probably cast your mind back to high school, which for me is... 25 plus years ago, too many years ago. So if anyone asked you, what is, what is the book of Romeo and Juliet about? I mean, you could answer and say, well, it's about two starstruck lovers, one called Romeo and one called Juliet. You know, uh, Claire Danes, remember, and Leonardo DiCaprio. It could be about that, but it's so much more than that, isn't it? It's about two feuding families, the Montagues and the Capulets. It's so much bigger than just Romeo and Juliet. It's about these two feuding families. But actually, it's even more than that because it's actually a story about Elizabethan England at the time and the tension that was existing between the Catholics and the Protestants. You see, the book of Romeo and Juliet is not just a star, about two starstruck lovers. It's something far deeper. If it was all the personal, if, if the gospel of, of God's grace was all about me personally, We'd be like, that's great, but does it really have significance beyond me? But if it was all about the, the kind of cosmic church of Jesus Christ from the beginning of time, you'd all be like, wow, but how does that affect me? You see, it has to be both. So let's read together Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. It'll come up on the screen behind, behind me. But when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. You see, because of the grace of God, I enjoy a personal freedom. There is a personal freedom that I enjoy and you enjoy because of the grace of God. It says right there in verse 7, it says, we are, because of the grace of God, I am no longer a slave to the world. I am no longer a slave to sin. I am, instead of that, I am a son or a daughter of God and therefore an heir to an unshakable inheritance in Jesus Christ. The grace of God has set me free at a personal level. But it's more than that. The grace of God has set us free as God's people, as God's local church, as, as the body of Christ. It, Paul goes on to say that we are redeemed or rescued from a life of rule keeping. What defines you as a local church? What defines church in the city as a local church? Is it because you adhere to a, a certain system of rules? If the neighbors were to look at and say, what defines restoration? Is it that you follow a, a system or a set of rules? No. What defines you, what defines us, what defines communities of God is that we outwork faith through, through expressing love and we walk in step with the Spirit of God. We're not defined by the rules that we follow. Now, we don't steal. Do, do you not steal the, from the bank because it says so in a rule book? Or do you not steal from the bank because the Spirit of God convicts you that it doesn't honor Jesus Christ or the people that you're taking from? You don't need to stand at a bank and go, oh my goodness, um, what do I do? There's money here on the, there's like a thousand dollars. Do I take it? No, you don't refer to a rule book. You follow the leading of the Spirit. But it's not just personal. It's not just the local church. It's this cosmic reality. And that's what Paul says. He says, but when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. Paul says so in Galatians 1. He says that God sent Jesus Christ to remove our sin. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come to remove our sin. Thank you, Jesus, that you've done that in me personally. But more than that, he's rescued us all from this present evil age. You see the cosmic importance of this. I'm saved personally and individually and filled by the Spirit of God. But I don't just work out my salvation alone. I work it out in the context of a family like this one, where we represent Jesus Christ here on earth as his arms and his legs. But more than that, we're not just a, a, a small church in the, in, in the middle of North Center or a church in the city, a small church out in Wicker Park. We are part of this kind of cosmic thing that God is doing. That we are part of the, of the people of God, the universal church that is already gathering before the throne of God. Right now, there are people from every tribe and every tongue who are joining in with the angels, singing glory and worship to God in heaven. That's the context for your Sunday gatherings. So the gospel is not about food and foreskins. It's not about rule keeping or living to human standards. The gospel's about faith in God. The gospel's about forgiveness from the Father. The gospel's about being part of a diverse family. The gospel is about freedom from slavery and things to the world. The gospel is about the fruit of the Spirit and living constantly under the favor of heaven. So I ask you this morning, where does your boast lie? Where does your confidence come from? 
in what do you have your anchor rooted in? Is it in the fact that you follow certain rules or a system, a, a system of rule keeping? Or is, it, is, is your confidence in Jesus Christ? Can I suggest, it's, it, Paul goes one step further. He's not saying put your confidence even in Jesus Christ. He's saying put your confidence in the cross of Jesus Christ. He's saying put your confidence in, in Jesus Christ at his most vulnerable and, his, and, his, and, and apparently where he was most defeated. Put your confidence in that. You see the world out there will do this and they want us to put our confidence in our, in our success and our, and our wealth and our, and our good looks and our possessions and our wisdom and our achievements. And, what, and what, what Paul is saying is, no, put your confidence in the, in the, in the vulnerability of Jesus Christ. Put your confidence in, the, in Jesus Christ, at his, at, ultimately in Jesus' death. Because from Jesus' death, God raised him from the dead. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, all that the world has to offer is now crucified to me and me to the world. The wisdom and the, and the fame and the success and the wealth of the world are things that can be used for the advancing of God's kingdom, but they're not my source. They're not my anchor. They're not what I stand and find confidence in. I love singing old hymns, and we sang a beautiful one today about the grace of God. But there's one that goes like this. It's kind of been modernized by Hillsong. It's called Cornerstone. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's a boast. What I've just read there is a hymn, but it's a boast. We are boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ and that everything else falls away except that truth. He has another beautiful hymn. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. I want church in the city, my church, the church that I help to lead. I want us to boast in one thing and one thing only. Not our, not our musicians, or maybe one day when we own a building, a nice building, or the systems or procedures that we have to kind of gather people, as important as that is, or the fancy website that we have, which we don't have yet, but maybe one day we will. I want us to boast in one thing. And I trust this would be true for, for restoration. That you would do the little things well. You'd be faithful as you are to welcome visitors, to worship with all of your heart, to be friendly as I know you are. But don't put your hope in that. Boast in Jesus Christ. Boast in the cross. Boast in the reality that God is able to take his son who was dead for three days and bring him back to life, to resurrection life. And that same resurrection power is available in, in you and me. Let's boast in that. Let's boast in the gospel of grace. 
I was running the other day and listening to a Bethel worship song, um, I Am a Child of God. You know that song? I'm not going to sing it. But it's a beautiful boast. It's a boast in the Lord. You split the sea so I could walk right through it. My fears were drowned in perfect love. You rescued me and I will stand and sing, I am a child of God. That's a boast. Friends, I cannot express how important worship is on a Sunday morning. Worship primarily is glorifying God. But can I say, if that is 1A, then 1B, worship is doing two things. It's doing what Goliath was doing to Israel. Number one, it's reminding the enemy of who we are. And it's reminding ourselves of in whom we boast. When we worship, we're reminding ourselves, this is who I am. I am a child of God and my God split the sea so that I was able to walk right through it. Our boast is our identity. It's where we find our worth. We can boast in many things, in wealth, in wisdom, in achievements. We can boast in calling, even good things that God has given us. We can find ourselves, if we're not careful, boasting in those things. But I want to say, friends, that's not where our confidence lies. Our boast is, is in the Lord. Our boast is in, the vict- in his victory from the cross. And our boast is in the fact that because of his victory from the cross, we get access all the day, all day, every day, access to his grace and mercy that never ends. We don't live according to a system of rules. We live according to the gospel of grace that is alive in our hearts by the reality of the Holy Spirit. So Father, we just thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, for this gospel of grace that has set us free and liberated us. And Father, I pray over over individuals in this church and I pray over restoration, Lord, that your grace would be on display for all to see, that we would boast in the beauty and the magnificence and the the, uh, vulnerability yet the ultimate victory of the cross. That we would boast in all that you have done, Jesus, and all that you are, Jesus. We would say today that, that the world will offer us a rock to stand on that is, that is, that is defined by, by the things that we've achieved. But Lord, we say our rock is not like the world's rock. Our boast is not like the world's boast. We fix our eyes on you. And Lord, as this new year stands before restoration, and as they do all that you've called them to do faithfully, I pray, Lord God, above all of that, would be their confidence resting in you. I pray, Father, for, for a, just for a, for, for a, just a, a strength to come upon this church, a, a, a courage in you to come upon this church, a, a, a forehead like flint, as it were, Lord God, to love people by the grace of God and to reach out to people by the grace of God and to be themselves by the grace of God. Lord, I speak that over this church in Jesus' name, that this church would be itself by the grace of God, not anything or anyone else, but the church that you would want this church to be. Lord, we, we've come out from underneath a system of rule keeping. If we've been saved by grace, how dare we put others under human standards? 
And I say, Lord God, let this church, let the people in this church be free from human standards. Let the people in this church be, be known as a people who are free by the grace of God. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We worship you. And we pray all of these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen.